and welcome to the Get Known Podcast. I'm Steve Lee. For those of you new to Get Known, we interview journalists about their work and what they cover so the companies know better how to engage with the press and get their company covered in the media. Our big goal is to make sure the companies out there who are reaching out to the press build the right relationships, pitch the right ideas, and understand better what wastes journalists' time and what wastes their time. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Kari Johnson, senior writer at Wired Magazine. Originally, I thought that his focus was solely on AI, but I found out that his work goes far beyond that into the cultural effect of technology on society. He brought to the table the idea that some technology is so seamless that we take it for granted. We ignore huge amounts of influence that it has over the way we and society function. We have no idea how much it impacts us. In addition, in this interview, he tells some of the places his reporting has taken him to, interesting stories that he's covered and is covering, and he shares some of his process about getting stories both written and published. We talk about working with editors, and he helped me build a much better understanding of life as a tech writer. He also shares some of the inspirational history of his family roots in journalism and how diversity can help make journalism and publishing better. This talk for me was both informational and inspirational. So pop in those earbuds, get on your walking shoes, clean the kitchen if you want to, and join me for this conversation with Kari Johnson. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Kari Johnson. I'm a senior writer at Wired Magazine. Um, I focus on matters at the intersection of technology, society, and power. Um, based in Oakland and spent a considerable amount of time in Helsinki as well. And uh, I've been writing about technology for the better part of the past decade. What got you into uh, talking about tech? And you know, have you just have you know? For me, I'm an engineer, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I sort of got into it. I've always been a nerd. You always been a nerd. Always been. I would say so. I, you know, and never take it as a uh, negative term. Um, you know, I was telling my daughter, I think it's definitely has something to do with the popular science uh, subscription that I had when I was a little kid and the kind of imagining what's possible, you know, that really got some of it going and having a personal computer at home didn't hurt, you know. Uh, but yeah, I think those have a, have a big part to do with it. Uh, I went to school at San Francisco State University, which I frequently tell people has an absurd mascot because it's a it's a gator, but it's, it's just a play on words. It's a golden gator. <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> I went to San Francisco State, and while I was there, I did an internship at Business 2.0 magazine and did a lot of fact-checking of tech articles and working with people like... Um, Om Malik or um, Owen Thomas and people who, um, many other people, Michal Levram, I think she's at Fortune now. Um, it impresses me that it's this much, uh, nearly 20 years later and they're still doing this work. Um, so that has a lot to do with how I got started. What kinds of things are you covering now that you feel are, are 
up and coming that maybe people don't know so much about? Um, I don't know if it's up and coming so much as just where I've spent a lot of time focused, uh, but the ways in which artificial intelligence can um, harm people concerns me. Uh, in particular, the phrase that I hear a lot in my own reporting and some other reporting from other journalists in the space is most people don't know what's happening. Um, there are some high-profile instances where, you know, for example, um, was the Apple uh, credit card when that came out. Uh, some high-profile people in the tech world found out that their wives were getting different um, credit, uh, you know, uh, extended to them by comparison to what their husbands were getting and things like that where they didn't know that it was happening until some sort of accident happened or somebody who's um, receiving public benefits and um, weird circumstances leading to them finding out that it happened or facial recognition used in a criminal investigation and by in some some states it is part of discovery law now um, that there is disclosure um, when it's used in an investigation but by and large it is not the standard that if somebody is identified with facial recognition technology that their lawyer or the accused person will be notified that facial recognition played a role in the investigation and so there's a path by which it can begin a person can be identified as a criminal suspect with facial recognition and you can go all the way to trial and conviction and never need to bring facial recognition into the process um, that a judge or jury would see necessarily, but the investigators used because it's treated as an investigative tool instead of evidence. So that type of stuff really concerns me and I think that there's a lot being worked out now, um, talked about at least, about uh, how to regulate what it would look like to put uh, human rights impact assessments in place to ensure that somebody's um, civil rights or um, human rights aren't violated uh, by automation and the use of technology. You probably are quite compelled to try and change some of the things that you see and try and do something about them. How do, how do you handle that as a journalist in your job as a journalist? What's um, I don't know how to break that kind of stuff down, whether or not you consider yourself an activist or um, something else. I think it's good to be honest with people about what your perspectives are, um, where you've landed on issues, and I try to do that. Um, I think it's important that we get to a place where more people from different backgrounds are building the technology um, who can see how there may be downstream effects or um, negative consequences. Uh, I think what I do try to focus on in my reporting, and I hope that it comes through for people who read my work, is um, trying to maintain some form of accountability. Um, whereas there are a lot of people who are in the marketing space who are out there who are making pitches. Uh, we are wholly outnumbered and have been for a very long time, um, and that's true, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, technology is one aspect of that, but the amount of working journalists in the United States, for example, um, has declined um, over the last decade or so. So 
I think there are fewer people asking questions and in that environment um, it's easy for things to continue on a certain way and assume that somebody's going to get to it um, but they might not and it might just perpetuate that way so yeah I think there is um, I, I certainly speak to people who would consider themselves activists and I try to quote people who have opinions that I feel like are not part of the conversation it can be a challenge to find people who are directly impacted by artificial intelligence because like I said if it's if it's used in an interface on a website or an app or whatever it is that you're using to, to access this information, um, when it's in use isn't always known to a person, so that's always a challenge. But uh, yeah, I, I try to, um, I certainly get frustrated with people who feel like it's okay to engage in human rights violations. I feel like there's you know, maybe I'm just more aware of it now and the amount of work that I've done in this space. Um, certainly less of the um, overly optimistic uh, t tone, I think, that was um, really present, let's say, in like the mid-2010s. I think once you hit like 2017, 2018, people are talking about a tech lash and people getting upset about what large tech companies are doing and how that's impacting their lives um, in society. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's something that I, I think about it a lot, yeah. There's a lot of companies out there with AI technology. Yeah. And they want to get into Wired Magazine. Mm -hmm. But you're not about promoting their product. And we've talked to lots of journalists who try to help people understand this idea that the technology that the company is providing mm -hmm. is not the story that you are trying to tell. How do we uh, help people understand it? Do you have a, maybe an example of how you engage with companies who have technology and what kinds of things you'd like to hear from them? Um, well, I would say that I generally take the stance that the, the least amount of time that I'm spending in my inbox or engaging, sometimes engaging with marketers in general, um, is a metric of success for my job. Uh, I am hyper aware of the fact that I am getting pitched constantly and that I'm outnumbered. And so it's something that I try to be cognizant of when I'm thinking about how to divvy up my time. Um, again, who are the voices that aren't being part of the conversation is something I, I try to be cognizant of. But in terms of how to make uh, a decent pitch, beginning with why you feel like it's you have something that's a unique data set or a unique use case or something that is not prevalent um, is a good place to start. Uh, I don't take a lot of cold calls necessarily. I, I, I pay attention to what's in my inbox, but the read that I do on an email is 15, 20 seconds maybe. 
because right. I just don't. There's just so, so little time. So um, length of an email, if it's longer than a certain, you know, like 200 words, like I'm, I'm gone, mm-hmm. you know? So that's, that's, that's a part of it. Um, just understanding that the numbers are imbalanced and that they're, they're, it's, it's hard to, to find time to go through that stuff sometimes. What are the things that you worry about? Like, for example, I know you have to pitch to your editor you, anything that goes and things like that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your process, what you go through to, to build a story, mm-hmm. and, and the things you're looking out for, and you know, so, that, so that more people can sort of assist in helping you get through that process. Uh, you know, each story can be different, so that's, that's challenging to, to answer, I suppose. But I'm looking for people who are competent in their, um, you know, areas of expertise. And sometimes that can line up with the news cycle, and I'm looking for somebody with a precise um, understanding, you know, the amount of stuff around Ukraine, for example. Uh, satellite imagery became a big, bigger part of the reporting that I've done. Um, that, and because I was working on stories that were sort of um, near that subject. So I think one of the really basic things to keep in mind is just go to my author page and see what I've been writing about. I feel like there's a lot of marketers that will skip that step and not be understanding the kind of trajectory of the questions that I'm trying to ask or answer. There are, if you read underneath the, you know, the, the writing on the wall of the types of stories that I'm covering, you can see what I might have an interest in. And there's no point in, you know, there might not be a point in pitching me a, something about robotic process automation in your enterprise if the questions that I've been asking in the last six months aren't related to that. Um, much more of what I've done in the last six months are related to space, uh, satellite imagery, um, and the ways in which AI can harm people. And so those feel like fairly precise niches. That's not to say that I can't write other stories. I feel like a fortunate and great part about working at Wired is if you have an interest in something else, um, you can bounce around. Uh, I wrote something last fall about the types of companies that are using drones to plant trees and the little seed balls that they make to try and like, some of them like shoot them into the ground, some of them just drop them, you know, and the lack of scientific evidence that they are actually succeeding in planting trees despite the fact that they will all make the claim that they are built, they're planting a billion trees. They plan to plant a trillion trees and it feels really irresponsible in this time in our history (laughs) to make these claims about how many trees you're planting and not bring the scientific evidence. Where's the beef, you Mm -hmm. know? So, um, you know, like I said, if you were to read through my stuff, um, you might come to understand that I speak to a lot of researchers. I read a lot of research and I, so, um, I try to keep that as a foundation so that we aren't going into the weeds of speculation and everything else and trying to keep things as my goal is to make it as good as I can for the reader and hopefully that shines through for them.
Do you ever get any pushback? Like, what's the relationship you have with editors these days? Is it, you know, how does that, how do they, how does their work um, play into what you do? Um, I mean, it's significant, of course. It's um, important to have editors at times because they can tell you when you're veering off in a direction that even though your heart and mind might want to, again, you're trying to make something the best you can for the reader. And so at the end of the day, you've got this um, audience that sometimes shows up in my inbox and tells me what they think of things and sometimes not or jumps in the tweets or something. Um, but I'm trying to make things best I can for them. So um, yeah, editors are a big part of deciding whether or not to go down a rabbit hole or whether something is deserving of the time and investment. And so quite often, um, if I receive a pitch, uh, the response might be, let me get back to you. Got to talk to my editor. <laughs> Got to talk this over. And, 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 you know, I think a lot of people don't understand that editorial process and mm -hmm. the fact that you do have to do that. About uh -huh. how many stories a, a month do you crank out or a year and and what's the sort of timing on them the cadence yeah um, the standard right now that I try to keep is roughly three to four stories a month um, it depends on if you're writing something that's a bit lengthier um, like a feature for wired then you, you might take a bit of time off and focus on that you know not time off but you might not write the stories that are part of your regular beat because of that so if you haven't heard from me for a while, it might be because I'm working on something like that. Um, but yeah, I'd say like three to four months. And um, you know, to, to the question of the, the process as well, um, you know, I mentioned editors are a big part of deciding whether or not something is worthy of the time and energy. Um, it depends on whether or not somebody within the same publication is writing about that subject or uh, the determination is made as, a, as an editorial like operation that they want this person to work on it while you focus on this. Um, the conversations with your colleagues can always be very illuminating. Uh, that's always, you know, during, before the pandemic, uh, being able to be in the same place with your colleagues and you're working on something, um, you get a pitch, that's one thing in determining whether something is worthy of spending time on, but when you're writing something and you get stuck, uh, the conversations with your colleagues do can play a, a helpful role in tweaking language, deciding who to call, things of that nature. So I'm going to get into the into the parts that 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 all the the marketers and PR people really really don't want to hear. But what are the things you really hate? about mm. about the way that the marketing and PR industry sort of works. Are there things that we could be changing about the way that we work with journalists and talk to journalists that could be done better? That if you could give us advice right now, what would you tell people who would like to, both companies that want to get their products out, but also PR agencies and PR people who, who are trying to work with you or approach you? Um, I would say, like I said uh, earlier, understanding what I've been writing about is important, but trying to write, read the writing on the wall about where I'm trying to bring it is helpful. It's 
may not be helpful to give me another pitch about an expert who's in you know focused on on bias because I've got an inbox full of that um, but recognizing like I said perhaps the trajectory of where I'm trying to bring things may be more helpful um, one of my pet peeves is getting the emails from people after a story and um, the word correction being in there <laughs> and it's like <laughs> it's if it's the misspelling of a name that is a correction and it'll be noted at the bottom of the story and that is the editorial standard that we should live by we should demand the same transparency of journalists as we do of our sources and society as at whole um, but when I get that and it's like not actually a correction or a clarification it's just this I don't know like this it, it's it's it is this um, it appears to be the marketer got a call from the client after the story is published and said we're not happy with this go back to them and make them change this and it just rubs the wrong way and I'm not gonna say I'm petty <laughs> <laughs> but don't think I forgot I'm like man oh, here comes that correct because you know the, it, I take it seriously uh -huh. you know and there's a process that has to be initiated after you know internally to take care of something like that okay things are a bit flimsier perhaps depending on where you work yeah um, around that now and with online in particular but it's important and serious so uh, you know ringing that bell and it's I, I don't think people take it as seriously as as you as we normally would take a lot of other things like I I'm wondering whether or not uh, maybe you could tell us how how is this different how is wired and your work at wired different from previous things that you've done. I mean, you've been into tech the whole time, but you didn't just land wired as your first job. Know. You know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you've been you've been doing this for a while. Is mm. it is it a little bit different or does do you feel like there's certain industry standards that are that are the same across the board? Um, you know, the economics of journalism make it so that industry standards what they were may not end up in every publication. I think uh, the in technology may be different than other sectors of journalism, but uh, I, I think Wired takes editorial standards pretty seriously and, and tries to adhere to some, some um, professional standards around corrections or, you know. Well, we sure else. see, we sure see that they you know that the standards are super high at Wired. I mean, that's why everybody wants to be in Wired. But um, but then there's the question of like, are things being done differently at different places um, in order to gain audience? Or you know, do you see any differences in how uh, you know? Do you have more autonomy in one place or another? Or these kinds of things. Um, do, do editors act differently at different places? I mean, of course, we've got personalities, but... I was going to say, I think it has a lot more, perhaps, to do with personalities and the, whether the editor and writer vibe, uh, perhaps, than it does necessarily the... 
the outlet, um, like I said, the economics of journalism can really uh, play a role in whether or not a publication decides uh, they're going to write a story or not. Uh, the frequency with which they publish is a big part of that. Uh, how often they take embargoes is a big part of that. At my previous uh, place of uh, work at, at VentureBeat, we took a lot more embargoes than we would at, at Wired. Really? So, so there are less embar like so. There's an embargo difference in a way. Like some places don't do embargoed stuff; they just want exclusive or let it go. Or what's the story? It, like if I share it with Mm-hmm. How did what what can you tell a little bit more about that? Well, I, I, I it's not to say that I wouldn't take an embargo at Wired. It's that it would it would happen less often. I think you know, highlighting your your raise your your funding round isn't really of course part not. of it. Wired, I think. Right. Um, whereas that might be in the headline. Right at, at VentureBeat or um, at other publications, uh, but again, that that speed of which you might focus on that type of story may may have something to do with how often you publish as well. Because if you're publishing uh, a couple stories a day or a story a day, like I might have done at at, at VentureBeat, uh, there are more things of that nature that are part of the flow or you know somebody's product launch it, it was just a bit it was a different animal. it was a different animal right yeah. so they were dealing with different kinds of stuff mm-hmm. whereas in you're talking like basically is most stuff at wired is kind of like news but not like happening at the moment but rather stories that are researched and mm-hmm. this type of thing yeah um, I think I'm fortunate that I get to step back and think about things a little bit sometimes, mm-hmm. or uh, I'm told by an editor to keep writing, as opposed to um, you might have demands to publish more often at other publications, and so the amount of time and energy that goes into a piece uh, can can vary. I hear you've been working on. Uh, some things working with different types of minority uh, journalists and organizing some things with that. Maybe you could tell a little bit about some of the things that you're doing outside of the work that you do at Wired every day. Well, I, I feel like one of the um, important things uh, that's missing in tech journalism is people from different backgrounds and not having those perspectives at the table you know, the amount of stories that tech outlets are writing about the lack of diversity at like Google and their engineers, uh, and then comparing that to the amount of news outlets uh, in journalism that aren't releasing their own diversity numbers, it's it's a double standard, and um, I think it serves nobody well. Uh, the reader. Uh, can be blind to these things. It can, this lack of diversity, determine which stories are written, um, whose voices are heard. And so I think that's uh, something that should change. Um, Certainly, uh, it can be a lonely place to be to try and write from a certain perspective or push to ask certain questions that other writers aren't writing. And I don't think it has to be. And so I've been working with a group of 
journalists at, at various tech outlets um, to create a group called Black Tech Writers, and I hope to be able to talk more about that and talk about my reasoning behind that in the future. Um, but you know, I think that there's a, a beautiful tradition in the United States of uh, black journalists asking questions, and um, I see my own background as part of that. Uh, my I do believe it was my great grandfather. I always get this wrong because it's like great, great, great. <laughs> uh, they're all great, you know. Right? Yeah. We know they're great. We all know they're great. It's just yeah. how many greats are they? Right. Um, but he was a Pullman porter. Okay. And he was delivering copies of the Chicago Defender, mm -hmm. and he was delivering those papers because people would live in fear that if the Klan found out that you were receiving a copy of this paper, that, uh, you know, that something bad could happen. And so, you know, he was doing that. Uh, my grandma's sister, Ethel Payne, was uh, one of the first um, black women to cover uh, the White House. And um, I'm very proud of the kinds of questions that she asked to power. Um, I try to focus on questions around power as well and um, how things impact society and um, do a fair amount of asking questions to yes tech companies but also governments and, um, and I, I think there's a lot of value there in, in including black voices but also um, there's a, a great benefit to democracy in general uh, that um, black writers have provided uh, for a long time and there's something uh, remarkable about the idea that it was illegal uh, for my ancestors to read and write and um, you know that I and, read write and research for a living I think that's really beautiful and the other thing too is that you know we I think a lot of people don't know these types of things can you tell a little bit about the Defender, um, what you know, and and because uh, so, I think a lot of the listeners mm -hmm. don't aren't familiar with with the Defender and and, and how it was started. Um, I mean, the details of that I are blurry to me right now. Um, when it started, I, I don't recall exactly. I want to say it was the late eighteen hundreds, but it was for some generations one of only two. Um, national black um, newspapers in the United States. Um, I think it still exists in some capacity. There was some sort of reform that took place a few years ago. Um, but that's the, the general part of it. And so, um, you know, my Aunt Ethel is what I call her, because that's, I guess, what my dad called her, so I never <laughs> changed it for anyone else. <laughs> But um, she, you know, just started writing in her journal, you know, um, or rather the journal entries that she wrote. I should say she spent a lot of time learning uh, writing, and I think she went to Northwestern for a bit, and, but she didn't really get started until like her mid-30s. And um, it was writing about the experiences of, um, and the realities for a black journal, excuse me, um, black service members in Japan after World War II that were published in the Defender um, shortly after uh, World War II uh, that got her started and so she went back to Chicago and wrote for a while and then later on she moved on to DC and covering uh, stories 
internationally, eventually uh, the apartheid. Um, she has this, um, there's a couple books about her, but there's, she, there's, it's just absurd how many like instances it's like uh what is it like Forrest Gump would it be like he'd just be like in the background in places you know <laughs> yeah totally totally yeah he's just like yeah I, I think it's always it's, there yeah. yeah and I also think it's just really important to like remember you know all these different things so the question I'd like to ask is what is the thing that people are missing out on what is the poss where are the possibilities if you were to bring more diversity into tech journalism, but all kinds of journalism, where are we? Where are we missing that? You answered it a little bit before, but maybe go a little bit deeper into like maybe even specifically in tech journalism. Where what are people missing out on? Well, I, I it's I guess a broad question to answer, but the first thing that comes to mind is um, the kinds of things that people are dreaming about or imagining what can be if you don't put people in a position where they're able to write stories that go beyond simply the harms or impacts to those communities, if it's just the diversity writer, if they are ghettoized or isolated in one place and focused, and just do that story, just only do that, um, then the risk is they don't have enough space or capacity to begin to think about what could be. They don't have the space to go out and start writing the stories about people who are working on those broader things, perhaps. Um, it's something that I think about a lot, you know, trying to strike that balance and trying to get past um, simply writing stories about somebody made a form of technology that is misogynist or racist. Um, the amount of energy that I see people putting into um, combating that and trying to make sure that people are aware that that's happening is taking away from that person's ability to do something else or to just, just being in the room and focusing on whatever it is they're into and not having to write that type of piece is what's missing or what can be lost. And so, you know, Personally speaking, I don't really comprehend not doing that type of stuff when you understand what an elementary school classroom looks like in most places at this point. If you are not making the investment, and it's not, um, it, it's, I think it's really important to call it an underinvestment in, in a lot of cases, um, and in a, you know, lacking the willingness to make the investment. Um, as opposed to putting the onus on, you know, uh, the uh, lack of diversity being something that came about by some other means. It is a lack of effort made on the part of these publications to make sure that they have a newsroom that looks like that or make sure that you have engineers that from those different backgrounds. Um, you know, I, it, I, I don't buy the the pipeline arguments as much. It's that you have to build a robust outlet that's capable of bringing in those other perspectives, not just because it's the right thing to do, because you want to make money. 
<laughs> I mean, the, the thing is that, that, that if we're gonna solve bigger problems, mm -hmm. at least what we've seen in also, you know, being kind of an engineer myself, um, if we wanna solve bigger problems, we need all the different people at the table mm -hmm. in order to solve those issues. And you miss stuff if everybody looks like you. You miss stuff if everybody thinks like you. You know, it has had the same experience and life experience that you have. Mm -hmm. So I always find it interesting when we go in, is there an answer for that other than to have, other, you know, not, not to say other than having people in the room, but, but are there other things that we can do as companies and as organizations to have more ways of thinking? I mean, one is to have reporters and other people, but uh, is that the only answer? Is there other, other activities that we can be doing to be more inclusive? I don't know, but I, I, it's important to me, the storytelling, um, because, you know, as I was mentioning before, if, if, only, if you're only writing about the harm, um, then uh, you can accidentally play into a, narr a single narrative Right. Instead of broadening and trying to keep it broad, the um, amount of perspectives that are out there, and putting a high value on those perspectives as something perspectives as uh, something that um, can lead you um, to you know better outcomes is is important. I think. I think it's so super important. Also, you keep on saying this thing that it's not about only bringing up the negative stuff. Mm -hmm. It's about trying to maybe even also inspire people mm -hmm. to look in different places and do new things. Yeah. And um, at least when I've been looking at some of your stuff, this recent hospital article and other stuff, it's about how do we take this this further, especially with things like we have here in Finland, like the nurses' strike and, mm -hmm. and other things that are happening in yeah. today's today's work. The that's such an important part of all yeah. that. I try to uh, strike a balance between those things, how um, artificial intelligence can be a positive impact, how that can practically go wrong, and the harm that is actively being uh, perpetuated. But I, 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 I never even feel like I get far enough down the rabbit hole of how much you can, the dreaming and imagining of what, what is to come, you know. It, it, Afrofuturism is something that is like my perspectives in that space are just beginning to broaden. But I think you know that's just and, and obviously that's that's a bit different than writing like a nonfiction daily thing. But um, growing your own borders of understanding what can happen, what's possible, um, is I think healthy and, and necessary when when you're writing about things that can be like hard to to, to swallow or, or to fall you know to, to look at especially from the black perspective because it seems like there's um, a willingness within some of these companies to like traffic in misogyny or white supremacy in order to create more advanced technology by using so much data it's thrown into a model and then they're like, oh, it's racist and sexist. And it's like, are you trying to solve this? Or are you just making it bigger and bigger to make 
to market your 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 AI model. Yeah, you know? and it would seem that, and and I mean, I think companies really have to be careful or start thinking about stuff. I would bet that most companies aren't thinking about that at all. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, like how things can practically go wrong, red teaming it, as mm -hmm. they say, um, is uh, definitely part of the um, what seems to be the legal um, regime that is beginning to emerge, uh, possibly in Washington D.C. and in Brussels, uh, the AI Act is being negotiated right now in the European Union, uh, the European Parliament, and I believe the Council of Nations are taking their look after the European Commission put it out last year. That's associated with the uh, types of use cases and approaches to AI that should be considered high risk and labeled as such or which should be banned. Um, it'll be very interesting to watch and follow. I'm trying to report it. Um, uh, and if you have any pitches on that, let me know. But um. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be one of our last questions. But but let's keep at it. Yeah. Um, so the legal regime for a lot of this stuff is being negotiated or talked about now. It's not in place in most places that uh -huh. there's some sort of restriction on how this technology is used. Um, governments are rushing to to get to it. In the United States, the lack of action by Congress is resulting in state legislatures trying to create their own forms of uh, regulation around this for for example when a police officer or excuse me an investigation criminal investigation has to share uh, and disclose that this technology was used for example mm -hmm. um, a lot of that stuff is just being discussed now there's but in the United States also the problem is there's no um, overarching privacy law to ensure that people would be informed of that sort of thing right like GDPR mm -hmm. these types of things Okay, taking another shift. Uh, you've worked both in Europe and you've worked in, in, in the States with, your, with, your, with the things you do. What kinds of differences in journalism and in, in reporting and the way news organizations work uh, between US and, 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 and Europe or Finland uh, do you see? Uh, the one that usually comes up is uh, European sources, and it, they ask in the U.S. too, uh, but they, you know, asking if they can see a draft of the article before it comes out. Um, that is, in my experience, not part of the tradition of journalism in the United States. Um, so it's not something that I engage in, and so there's quick conversations that can happen at the end of interviews around that. Um, I don't know if it's a difference, but I, I do try to make clear when I'm speaking with sources whether or not uh, something is, uh, <clears throat> I'll put this a different way. I try to be um, respectful of what level of communication they would be comfortable with. Would you like to speak on the record, on background, or off the record? If we're talking off the record, I can use the information that you're sharing with me, um, but I can't attribute it to you in any way and I can't print it. I can use it in my reporting process. I can ask people questions related to that, for example. 
um, if it's on background, I can refer to you as um, a person familiar with the matter or something along those lines. And on the record is using your name and quoting directly to you and your title and all this stuff. Right, the right. way this is. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I don't think that's a difference necessarily, but it's something that I do talk, try to talk with sources about because I know that different standards can exist in different places. And I feel like it's really important that sources feel comfortable um, speaking with me at the level at which they feel okay talking about it. Um, and that can be helpful, uh, for example, speaking on, on background or off the record and understanding the inner workings of a company or what's actually happening and um, getting a better sense of uh, the reality as opposed to what I'm being marketed or pitched. Mm -hmm. Is um, is it uh, uh, frustrating at all? Like again, do you do you since you don't really operate any differently, you operate in the way that you operate all the time. So uh, when you have to deal with these different expectations from different different places in different countries, is that a frustrating thing for you, or do you just roll with it and it's just like, yeah, we understand that 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 happens and. Yeah, I think most of the time I'm trying to be cognizant of who I'm speaking with, you know. Um, I guess I'm, I've, I'm much more lenient to a person who is not an executive or a VP of fill-in-the-blank, um, who, someone who's just, uh, you know, not just, but someone who's not familiar with the tech or media space um, I might be more lenient with. Um, I do enjoy talking to researchers. Mm -hmm. They're fun um, <laughs> because they're so honest, usually. Yeah. Um, and passionate about what they're really into, uh -huh. whatever like very precise rabbit hole they've spent the last twenty years in. Right. <laughs> um, but but yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple final questions here. Yep. Uh, First one is like, um, if you have any final advice for people, I know we've talked about a couple things, something that you'd really like them to remember when it comes to pitching and talking to, to you as you, as you do your reporting, um, what's the thing that they should remember the most? Um, <laughs> well, uh, a few things, I guess the, one of the things that comes to mind is you might want to um, don't take it personal if I don't answer your email initially. Uh, my email box inbox is a um, bit of a bit of a dumpster. There's <laughs> a lot of stuff going on in there. Um, you know, I get stuff from like colleagues, and I'm like, oh, I better answer that. You know, but like, uh, don't take it personal if you're a marketer and I didn't get back to you um, because I. There, like I said earlier, I, I feel like uh, journalists are generally outnumbered, and uh, I'm trying to get things into a editorial cycle, and um, uh, have the conversations with editors and colleagues and things of that nature. Um, do some research around whether or not it's a credible uh, lead uh, before uh, moving forward, and so that can take time. Uh, so that would be part of it. Um, and then the other thing is probably um, just returning to what I said before, which is um, uh, if you follow what I'm writing in, or um, 
you don't have to follow everything I write, but if you go to my off, just, you know, It'd go be to the nice, author. wouldn't it? Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but just go to the author page, you know, and um, try and get a sense of what types of questions I'm trying to answer or ask. I think there's so much about what I'm doing that I try to make transparent and clear for the readers. I'm trying to cite things and share the link back to it, etc. You don't have to click every link, obviously, but if you follow that type of information, then I think it can be helpful in um, making sure that the pitch is a good use of both of our time. That is really good. And if people do want to contact you, is email the best way to send you something or you check in Twitter or other stuff too? I check Twitter. Um, I have conversations with sources um, on Signal occasionally. Um, but yeah, if, if you have a pitch of some kind, uh, email is usually best. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Kari. Yeah. For hanging out with us on the podcast. Absolutely. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. This has been Get Known Podcast. Get Known Podcast is produced by San Francisco Agency located in the endless light of summer here in Helsinki, Finland. To hear more interviews with journalists and PR professionals, please subscribe to the Get Known Podcast feed. You can get a hold of us by connecting with me on LinkedIn. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-E-E or sending an email to getknown, all one word, at sanfrancisco.fi. Looking forward to hearing from you. See you next time.